They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Juan on Juan podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. something in Solomonic magic called the barbarous words basically when you're doing like the preliminary evocations to sort of get you in the right headspace of going into this you know you're gonna evoke something into a triangle basically it's pretty gnarly so you, you have to prepare yourself and that, and that involves a lot of stuff but to cut it short there's a part of it where you speak the barbarous words and there's no such thing as barbarous words. It basically just means glossolalia. It's nonsense. So you just spew out. It's actually part of it. The magician spews out, just like you know, just like absolute garbage. And a lot of it's vowels. It's hard to do that with just saying, you know, like hard consonants. You sort of end up just being like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, you know? and. The reason that you're doing that is to put you in an irrational state of mind. So you actually say these things which make no sense and they break up that sort of rational, mundane mindset to put you into a space where the idea of like a demon inside of a triangle across from you is not that crazy.
Hopefully this hat triggers some people. Because they're probably going to click on it and be like, F word this guy's hat. Because, right, we, we hate, we hate Trump. <laughs> but no, just read it. Make sure you read it good, right? Make Esoterica great again. And welcome back to another episode of the One Podcast. I'm your host, as always. And please excuse me today as I am recovering from a cold or something that the lizard people have casted upon me because I know it was meant for me because they're trying to silence me. I woke up Saturday without a voice at all. Like I was going to record Saturday and I couldn't because my voice was like completely gone. So, so it could be uh, Havana syndrome. I don't know what it is, bro, but I'm just going to go with the lizard people send it upon me. So excuse me if I'm a little bit raspy today and make sure to follow the show, social media at the one-on-one podcast, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever, everywhere at the one on one podcast, the one on podcast.com. And if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to comment, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And back by popular demand, one of the greatest guests we've had on the show. He's got that long go blood in him. So that's probably why. That'll well, do it. Welcome back, Professor Longo. <laughs> Thank up, you very dude? much for having me. What have Happy you been to up to since we last spoke? Uh, just running the bookstore. Things are chugging along. I uh, started a publishing business pretty recently. Working on our first project. That's pretty exciting. So should have our first book out this summer. Nice. It's not something I'm writing or anything like that. But yeah. And what made you do that, bro? You just wanted to bring more material to the realm or... Yeah, I just, uh, I kind of saw a hole, like I, I, I collect books and I saw a hole in the market of really well-made books um, that are beautiful, to, to be honest. It sounds kind of vain, you know, um, to be sort of buying a book because it looks cool, but anyone who says they don't do that is probably lying. Um, I think some books are only popular because they have a cool cover. Uh, at least it's an introduction. It has been for me. I've bought books. I'm just like, that just looks cool. And it ends up being really cool. Um, and so I thought, and that, that's kind of going away because to get the cool cover, you have to spend you have to spend money on a, a real artist most of the time. Um, and books are already not very profitable ventures for the most part. Um, so people usually go with some stupid cover uh that some graphic designer did and they print a cheap paperback version of it. Um, and it's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me because books are already not practical, right? They're completely re- absurd, you know, in terms of storage <laughs> space and the time and like, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So why try to make something practical when they're not, pra- you know, why try to make the cheap paperback when, it's already an impractical thing. You know, you should just go big at that point and just make it cool, you know, make a really nice hardcover with a beautiful cover art and all that. Yeah. And then, and then there's also so many things that are out of print, whether they're in the public domain and you can easily reprint them or they're like pretty cheap to license. And I just saw that firsthand in the bookstore and I was like, Oh, I, you know, might as well just do it myself. Is there anything you want to plug for the people and where they can find you? Or are you going to leave that up to? No, it's really early on. Um, 
we don't even really have a name down, but we're working on a book that's going to be called Monad, and it's a compilation of Neoplatonic writings translated by Thomas Taylor. So mm. things by Plotinus, Iamblichus, Porphyry, Proclus. Uh, it's going to be like a collection, basically, like a nice thick book. And can't give away too many other details, but we have a, pre- a I would say, very well-known occult artist um, who's doing the cover. He's done a bunch of stuff for like some other big occult publishing companies and boutique publishing businesses. So teamed up with him and should be out this summer, I think. Does his name start with a J? No, it does not. All right. All right, because I was gonna say yeah, okay. he's not like a household name, but it, if you've if you're really into like collecting occult books, then you've probably seen his covers and just not realized because he's done a lot of stuff. Mm, okay, that's cool. Well, yeah, that's me really. Are you gonna get into monadology at all? Are you talking about the monad? Um, yeah, I, I'm. I guess I already am in the monadology. Throw some Leibniz yeah. in there and. Right. Yeah, I, I really like like Heidegger is uh, a monist, and then the Neoplatonists and Plato himself and Pythagoras and a lot. I mean, most mysticism is essentially uh, monist. You know, mm-hmm. it's all, almost uh, inherent to the philosophy, I guess, or the practice. Yeah the the idea of taking God. And breaking him down into something that you can manipulate. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole Monas hieroglyphica, <laughs> right? Yeah. Being able to manipulate reality through alchemy and break break it further down than it's already broken down, right? And that's like that's that when you start to think about that, it blows your mind. And I know we're gonna be talking a little bit about Byzantine. Did I say that right? Byzantine magic, Byzantine yeah. empire. And this is around, kind of sort of around that time. This is the 5th century. 5th yeah. century all the way up until the 15th century. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, dude. And I know I wanted to touch upon a little bit about what we talked about last time because it was a really fascinating conversation where it went as far as the, you, you blew my mind towards the end of it. And it was just like this concept. And I've recently been getting into Young. And I know we talked about George Luis Borges last time and it, and his idea of fiction. And it kind of sort of plays into the tree. Of, I've been learning about Kabbalah and how when you start to transcend the Sephirot, how that's that. I don't want to say the Mundus Imaginalis because that's a whole different concept, but this imaginary world this place that you can go to either mentally or i believe that maybe perhaps you can get there physically at point with with, you know through a a portal of some sorts but the idea of interdimensional literature that's what i that's what i coined it interdimensional literature that has affected people's reality yeah and it's funny that you say interdimensional because Jung is essentially, Carl Jung is essentially dealing with um, multiple dimensions. We wouldn't call them that because we are, we're always thinking physical. 
Um, so when people are saying, oh, that's a different dimension, you know, they're hopping between dimensions. They're usually thinking, oh, there's, you know, uh, out in the world outside of me, there's things popping in and out of invisibility or something. And there's like a parallel world. Um, I'm not saying that's not true. I mean, I don't think it is personally, but most people think that it's sort of out, out there. Well, I don't really have a reason to believe so, but there's one other dimension that we do know about and that we do directly experience. And that is the unconscious and well, the unconscious in all its forms. So one of them being dreams um, and the unconscious mind. It, it, is a, it is another dimension of reality, of your reality, my reality. We experience it directly. Like we actually come face to face with it. And things can go between the unconscious and the conscious mind. And that is hopping between dimensions. Um, you know, I don't know if you follow what I'm saying, but so that sort of ends up Absolutely. being the, that interdimensionality. Yeah. That's what I think of is going between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind and sort of that bridge between, um, and which essentially you end up with in dreams and things like that. So, I had on Ronnie Pontiac, and he was the one that studied with Manly P. Hall for, he was, he studied for him, he knew him for seven years, and he studied for him for, he was his authorized bibliographer for a little while, and I had asked him if he he sort of felt initiated by Manly P. Hall, in, in a sort of weird way. Now, he did say he was visited by Manly in his dreams. And he kind of hinted at towards something, but he didn't really come on and say he was initiated because the first thing you would think the younger he met the old yeah. Manly P. Hall, but the younger Manly P. Hall, the occult anatomy of man, Manly P. Hall, the secret teachings of all ages, Manly P. Hall, that was the occultist Manly P. Hall. That was like the OG hardcore Manly P. Hall. And he said that he did teach him one thing, which I tried the other night, I think last night or the night before the Pythagorean recollection because i know we're talking about the dreamscape which some people believe that the dream realm is another dimension that things are able to come in through into our reality now maybe not supernaturally because i like the supernatural too i do think that there's that there is a an area for the supernatural at one at, at one point somewhere like the, that that quantum intent I think, I think that the supernatural and high strangeness is occurring in the collective unconscious mm. that it is jumping from the collective unconscious, which is unseen un um, it's not within our conscious awareness by definition. And it's hopping into our conscious definite into our conscious awareness, you see, and that is the hopping between dimensions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you see a, a being or a, a ghost or a flying saucer or something that pops in, sort of out in mundane reality, I don't think it's hopping between some random, you know, other planet or other universe into this planet. I think it's hopping between our dream un- sort of collective unconscious mind up into the conscious mind. Mm-hmm. The perceivable in, reality. Yeah, into the perceivable. So I don't think that it's sort of out there. That's what I'm trying to say. I think it is sort of... Uh, not to take away from it doesn't mean that it's like, Oh, it's all in your head. It's, it's, and the reason that I think that 
sorry. Can you still see me? Yeah, I can still see. All right, my, I just had a window pop up on my computer. The reason I think that is because the only other dimension that we actually have experience of that we can really talk about is the unconscious. Mm-hmm. So we don't experience these mathematical parallel universes. You know, none of us have any um, direct experience of those. So why point to those? when there's a really wacky, crazy other dimension in the unconscious that we do experience, we know is real. You know, so that's why I point to that. So the reason I was saying that was because you have Young and his red book. And I, again, I'm diving now into Young. I'm, I'm getting there. And my, yeah. my research, I always stay stuck on one thing and then I'll kind of like, waddle along different topics and the topic of young has been popping up a lot and you're absolutely right there are things in our unconscious that we that can be projected into this perceivable reality and i was listening to a podcast today nick hinton on my family thinks i'm crazy with mark and they were talking about the mysterious airships of the 19th century and how that evolved from these mysterious airships from walter bosley's work to this futuristic flying saucer that we see now. And I know that Jung talked about the flying saucer phenomenon and how this could be projections of our, of our psyche and all these different things. But the idea that when you start to write these things down in some sort of weird way, they start to manifest themselves in our reality. And that's what the red book was all about, how he's talking about these entities that he's interacting with. And then as soon as he starts to acknowledge it and write it down, it stops kind of, cause he was being haunted and you know who else was being haunted that we talked a little bit about on the last part, John D was being haunted. And then yeah. he talked about Edward Kelly and that spiritual creature that led him to the Voynich manuscript. And also I believe it was, he had conjured that spiritual cre- creature through the use of the Voynich manuscript. Really? Yeah, it was on the. Yeah, you messaged me about that. Because, like, how wild is that? Because you have the the Voynich manuscript where some people say it's some guy looking through a microscope at one point and it was what he was seeing. And then you have other people talking about they feel a certain type of way when they're reading it. Is is the. Is the. Are the pages made of some sort of. Or the ink made of some sort of poison or something? Or is it because you're not initiated? That's why you feel some sort of way, right? It's like this weird... That's why I dubbed it interdimensional literature because these these books that quite literally affect reality, even if that is a psychedelic trip or not. But this idea, I I really love it. So Jung starts writing his experiences in this book. And it's a, a sort of way to navigate the dreamscape, the unconscious, and kind of tame it, which then I relate that to Borges' work, Borges, where he's talking about how fiction is more real than reality itself. And then even some of the concepts in his books, like Talon and, was it, Ukbar, Talon, where they're, they're (laughs) reminds me of Tartaria, they're creating this entire universe, essentially, this entire history and they do they do it through what through books it's like oh yeah. i found this book but then i'm trying to find the references and i'm not finding the references but it's there so they start to what yeah. they start to believe it because it's in this book 
So I don't know, man. I think it's a very interesting concept as far as writing things down. And I've been told by an occultist that when it's written down, and I guess this is where written in stone comes from, it's solidified in our reality in some sort of weird way because vowels hold existence together. And that's why that's 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 sigils obviously are are huge uh, with writing down. Well, this is why some cultures don't use vowels when they're spelling out the name of God. That's why it's G dash D. Right. Because they can't use vowels. But then you have the Gnostics who would use these weird incantations that would be vowels. They would be these weird. They're using like the vowels, bro, and like conjuring who knows what they were conjuring. Probably like there's some. So there's two things that are interesting. One was you were talking about sort of like calling things into being in like the imagination. So Alfred North Whitehead is a really good philosopher if you haven't read him. He talks about that and he proves uh, the existence of metaphysics. Metaphysics obviously meaning things which are outside of physics. So things that are um, not, you know, just like wheels rolling down a hill or something, you know, that don't abide by physical laws. And uh, most notably cause and effect, because that's sort of the underlying um, presumption and law of physics is like regular cause and effect. You know, this thing bumps into that and makes it move sort of deal. Um, and it's very linear and he proves that with the imagination. So he says that, um, the mind creates things from the future coming backwards. So you actually think of it first, like I'm going to do this and then you do it. And that thought is sort of you doing it in like the mental universe and then you actually do it. So it comes backwards. And so he says cause and effect is completely flipped in the mind. And he says that proves that um, there are metaphysics, there are things which operate outside of standard cause and effect. And I thought that was so cool that it comes from the, you know, sort of um, comes backwards at you. You you sort of dream it up and then then do it. It's Rocco's Basilisk where before you can even stop it by you just thinking about stopping it, it's already won. It's already yeah. beaten you because it's already manifested itself in the future. And back to what I was saying about Ronnie Pontiac, he said the Pythagorean recollection technique. And I've I've been using different techniques to remember my dreams. And yeah. I talked to your brother about it when we went out to go eat that day. And he told me it was like Masonic. I've also seen other people say it's chaos magic and then some other say buddhist but essentially pythagorean recollection this is a whole nother thing is where when before you go to sleep you remember all your events of that day because you're, you're talking about it backwards well yeah. you think about all the things that you did that day backwards yeah crowley crowley tells you to do that in um does he book, uh, yeah book four uh, and his magic. He, well, so you know the famous thing when people do the singing backwards, like in yeah, back masking. Yeah, yeah, that is comes from Crowley because in one of his books he says do everything backwards. Well, as an exercise, mm-hmm. he says learn right left handed. Yeah, learn to talk backwards, watch movies backwards. That's why people watch like Disney movies and they see them doing like 
you know, all these like crazy things when you watch it backwards. Um, and Crowley was just saying to do that as an exercise, sort of break the linearity. Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly what you said is what he says to do. He says before bed. Um, and he says it's too difficult to start with the whole day. So he says to sort of start with the smallest uh, or shortest period of time that you can think of, like you walking into the room. And once you've mastered being able to do that backwards, mm-hmm. um, you can sort of keep going further and further yeah. and further. Um, and, and then, I mean, he basically says you could go into almost like past lives. You could go all the way and just, he calls it the magical memory. He, he has like tons of stuff on it. So um, I did yeah. the, cause I've done the Pythagorean recollection and I tried that for the first time. And the problem is, I don't know if it was a nightmare or not, but I was able to remember my dream because I had a pretty simple day yesterday. It was a Sunday. I didn't really do much. So I was able to go back through the day and remember what I did. And then you're supposed to play it forward. And then you're supposed to be able to just get good. You're going to get good at it eventually, whatever, if you keep at it. But point being is I remembered my dream. I don't know if it was a nightmare or not because it was a kind of creepy, creepy ass dream. But that's the problem that you remember the good and the bad. So you remember the scary parts too is, it's, and, and the actual dream itself and then the other the other method that i tried this the skull fuck method which i've talked on the show about before but essentially you're supposed to envision your yeah, your, your that pretty weird yeah, <laughs> your spine beca- becoming a big a <laughs> was it with you that i talked about that yeah it is or it was really because i've talked about it a whole bunch of times but yeah the the, the big penis and the spine and yeah, apparently that's like involves sexual gnosis and visualization. So it's supposed to help you achieve it. And dude, I'm telling you, bro, it works. And then so ever since I've been doing the the reading about Young and how this he talks about remembering your dreams and being able to write them down and take notes and all this stuff. I've been kind of practicing those methods. And it's so creepy how I'm able to recall my dreams to a t bro it's the craziest thing and it's always the most potent so i don't because whenever i smoke weed i can't i don't dream bro i don't yeah a lot of people yeah a lot of people say that i I, it's like it shuts it off so you have to go through at least i do detoxify myself for x amount of weeks don't not smoke and then get back into the flow of the you know visualization and everything else until i can start to remember my dreams and it'll it'll come randomly it'll be like and it's always the most potent the first night where i do it and then it's that dream is like boom from like the beginning bro all the way to the end i had this crazy dream where bigfoot was shooting at me with like a 22 rifle and i was like outside with a whole bunch of chinese people like this outside theater it was crazy dude and then i was talking about how i was talking about bigfoot in front of somebody else and then they started talking about Bigfoot too, and we manifested Bigfoot. And I was like, this is why everybody needs to fucking mind their own business because they heard me talking about it. They're like, what is this talking about? So we manifested Bigfoot, and he started shooting at us. So it's like this yeah. weird thing. There's one thing that I, I was actually going to bring up Bigfoot, um, as, as I do, um, because you mentioned, and this is a funky connection I didn't think we were going to make, but you mentioned the valves. And you said that there's some like Gnostic, whatever rituals or something that they use. Yeah, I'll pull now. them up now. But continue. Yeah. Well, there's something in Solomonic magic 
called The Barbarous Words. Um, and basically, when you're doing like the preliminary evocations to sort of uh, get you in the right headspace of going into this, you know, you're going to evoke something into a triangle, basically. It's pretty gnarly, so you, you have to prepare yourself. You know, and, and, that, and that involves a lot of stuff. Um, but to cut it short, there's a part of it where you speak the barbarous words. And there's no such thing as barbarous words. It basically just means glossolalia. It's nonsense. So you just spew out. It's actually part of it. The magician spews out just like, you know, just like absolute uh, garbage. And a lot of it's vowels. Um, Because it's hard to do that with just saying, you know, like hard consonants. You sort of end up just being like, you know. And the reason that you're doing that is to put you in an irrational state of mind. So you actually say these things, which make no sense, and they break up that sort of rational, um, mundane mindset to put you into a space (laughs) where... The idea of like a demon inside of a triangle across from you is not that crazy, you know. <laughs> Whereas sure. like ten minutes before you were like, oh, you know, before you did that, you were like, no, that's crazy. But then once you're like spewing glossolalia, you're like, oh, okay, maybe that's not that. And so that you kind of touched on that with the Gnostics. It's still going on in Solomonic magic if you read. The Goetia and things like that. The barbarous words. I mean, don't don't we all in our free time just read Goetic magic yeah. stuff, bro? We all do, yeah. <laughs> and but one weird thing that I've connected recently, which is pretty, it's pretty out there. But if you look up something called the Sierra Sounds, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, I am. But it's the most um, accredited or referenced recording of. It's by Ron Moorhead, right? Yeah, by Ron Moorhead. If and if you play it, it's the barbarous words. No, it's the the samurai chatter are barbarous words. They are this like a uh, magical, uh, mythical, mystical glossolalia that's spewing forth, and it sort of says to me that it's like this key of going between the unconscious and conscious. Oh. So, all right, all right, all right, all right. See, we never talk about what we're going to talk about because there's just so much to talk about. But you're you're saying that I did an episode with somebody who they said that what if the clicking of sounds and rocks together with that they that they attribute with Sasquatch or Bigfoot is actually just that. That's the sound it makes when it's coming in through through to this dimension. But then it would leave on the table what the fuck is a Sasquatch or what the fuck is Bigfoot mm-hmm. and why is it even doing that to begin with and you're linking yeah. freaking goetic magic yes. with yeah, for, yes forget about the rock clicking <laughs> listen to the Sierra sounds and it's the barbarous words I'm trying to pull up I'm trying to pull it up here Sierra sounds let me, let me check here hopefully we don't summon anything today let me, let me reshare my screen See if I can get this to play, but hopefully we don't conjure anything up. Thanks. Thanks to. (laughs) You ever hear about that Beach Boys song? Yeah, where you play it backwards and it sounds like there's a demon.
Bing somebody or something like that? No, no. That's, oh, that's a different one then. <laughs> there's a Beach Boy song where they say if you play it, like uh, it starts a fire or something. And so they like hit it for decades and it's finally come out. Uh, it probably doesn't because it's out now, but oh. that was a different No, there's another one. I think it's Led Zeppelin or something like that. Yeah. All right, let me see if this is it right here. So... In for night, Bill. Can you hear that? Part. Oh, that's creepy. So, what do you what do you think that was, bro? What do you? you know, the, the samurai chatter, where it's like, oh, do do yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. It were if. if sounds like the barber's words to me if if you were to do that part of uh, goetic magic it would sound the same as that tape basically so i've had lawrence carwana on the show before once upon a time, episode nine or something like that very long time ago and he's the one so when i first started podcasting i, I went deep on gnosticism and all that good stuff and i really just like cut my teeth yeah. And that was my yeah it's really fascinating it's so, it's so interesting but i feel like it's just a cul-de-sac because everyone i know me included who gets like really into it you kind of just come out of it and you're like eh. like it's it sounds so like alluring but i've only gotten a few things from it to be honest well because it's an it's another cosmology bro it's another story of creation and anything that you can think of quite literally any religion that you can think of there is an opposite of that exact religion somewhere else. One man's devil is another man's God. And it, it's going to be like that for forever. I'm, I'm going to hell in some other people's religions and they're going to hell in mine. It's just the way it is. Yeah. And I think in some sort of weird way that kind of cancels itself out. Like it can't, you know, I say, you know, it can't equal the same thing. It cancels itself out in the equation. Well, it's the same thing. I think it cancels itself out. In reality, if we're both going to each other's hells, it's like, well, we, yeah. we just don't go anywhere. And that's how we're here. But Carwana talked about it, how he calls it. So the second book of IO, and then he goes on to hear this present. I've dude, I've watched this presentation. I promise you, like, I'm not lying. It's a two hour presentation. And I've watched it probably 10 times. I'm not gonna. I'm not lying. I'm not even exaggerating. Like ten times at least. That's crazy. It's great, dude. It's amazing. He's a, he's an amazing lecturer. But he gets in, into here about the about the vowels and what I was telling you about how if it'll ever load. So essentially, when you're transcending through the aeons, right? The visualization, the vocalizations. So here he talks about it. 
where I challenge you. So they start to say the pretty much the entity's name because essentially every celestial body is a different demon and every celestial orbit is a different dimension. So according to Gnostic cosmology, when you're trying to transcend to the upper eons, right? Heaven, that, that to emerge with the one, the androgynous being, you need to learn every single demon's name. And in order to do that, because every single demon has power over you in the material world. And if you succumb to that demon, you've succumbed to, to lust or greed or whatever it was, if you don't learn that demon's name. So here he's talking about breaking it down. I challenge you X, Y, Z, whoever it is, the word who came forth from the silence. Da, da, da. And then they start doing these vo vocalizations. I L and gospel of the Egyptians names with vowels are spoken in the tongue of the father. First book names with the consonants are spoken with the tongue of the flesh. So the sound of the double long vowels are superior to the short semi-vowels. So it's this whole thing with the language. They, it's, it's a mystical. That's why in Harry Potter you have them speaking the, the spells. And it happens in real life when they can shoot lightning bolts or whatever it is. And it's just making me think of Full Metal Alchemist when they, you know, they always freak out. like, oh, you can do alchemy without a transmutation circle. Because he does the whole hand thing, fucking mudras or whatever it is. You have Naruto with the mudras too and doing all this crazy stuff. So I think that language itself was more powerful than it is now. And I think that's why you have all this mumble rap and bullshit and this, the, this lingo and other kids lingo nowadays and the slang that it's take demystifying the language even further and diluting it even further. And I don't know why the fuck this isn't even loading. But he goes on to talk about it in this presentation towards the end. And he says that we don't really know much about it. But point being that there is something to do with language that has an effect on reality itself. And I'll send you this presentation. It's a really great presentation, bro. Like he goes so hard in the paint. And he also does on alchemy as well. Yeah. But yeah. It, it kind of talks about that. Terrence and James James Joyce too. They both and and Wittgenstein as well believe that or sort of prove that the limit of the limit of our world and of our imagination is uh, set with language. See, so you, you nothing can be dreamed of or uh, seen which can't be termed. Basically, yeah, we're we're held back, and that's why guys like Elon Musk want to hook us up to a to a Neuralink language and its powers. I'm taking notes here, but that's why guys like Elon Musk want to hook us up to this Neuralink because he talked about oh there's gonna get to we're gonna get to a point where we won't even need to vocalize anymore. It'll all just be mental. And yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Like I'm I'm not transhumanist whatsoever i think that but again i also think that people should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies right if you want to put a chip in your ass and feel free to put it wherever you want right i mean it's it's freedom of of choice if you want to do that that's so so be it but i don't see it ending well it's the, how you and i have talked about it the faustian pact it's how far yeah. are you willing to go and we know how that story ends we know where it goes bro they've done a whole bunch of movies about it Anyways, to begin with. Yeah. Well, Terrence, we kind of didn't think we were going to 
go to the chip the chip side but he thought that we would transcend language um into images almost like back like he, i mean he called it his archaic revival um we'd go almost back to like hieroglyphic type stuff where like the image is representative of the thought or the proposition so almost like in a movie or something when you when you see it you know what it is there's nothing in between you know it's intuited so i don't you know what i mean and he thought that everything would become image-based basically all language well we're kind of sort of there now with emojis and i think there's like this weird crazy thing with emojis where it's like super protected and the company that introduced the emojis is is very serious about the emojis have you ever heard anything about that? The conspiracy behind emojis? No, I haven't dug that deep. It's in my friend's book. I have to find it. I'll pull it up here in a second. But the idea that the company that made them, but if you really look at it, there like some some people in the community that I know, they talk with like straight emojis, and I don't I don't really understand what they're saying, but I think. That's it's, it's got like a deeper. It's like the modern day hieroglyphics and how you're yes, saying. To, he thought that we would get to a point and he thought obviously the psychedelics were a pathway to that, uh, to sort of breaking down the barriers of our mind where mm-hmm. we can get to the sort of meme emoji image based language. Um, and he's a, he's a, what they call a techno determinist, which means that they think McKenna, huh? McKenna is a techno determinist. You said, yeah, he only follows in the footsteps of Marshall McLuhan. Um, and like Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called The Media's Medium, or The Media is the Message. So sort of like how you're getting your information determines how determines how you'll think in the culture and culture. Um, so things like you know typesetting um, font instead of cursive. So perfect uniform letters gave birth to democracy with perfect uniform people with equal image. You know. Like that sort of thing. Uh, they, they basically think that how how you're getting your information determines um, mm-hmm. how you think and like the culture. Absolutely, absolutely. The the deliverance is is everything. It's like when you with sarcasm, a joke, the delivery, the execution is everything. So absolutely, that that would make sense. And I found this here. This is in a book that's it's not out yet, but it's by Nick Hinton and. He talks about emojis. It's from the New World Disorder book. And he says here, nevertheless, it's no coincidence that we are now noticing associations between the smiley face, mind, mind control, chaos, magic, drugs, and electronic music. And many would argue that dancing in a disassociated state to strange frequencies resembling minor beats in a dark room full of flashing lights is a form of MK Ultra in and of itself. But by the late 1980s the smiley face had made its way into cyber culture as well because he gets into this whole thing about the smiley face killings and the actual smiley face itself the history of that at the time a carnegie mellon professor named scott falman used the characters and it's the semicolon dash and then parentheses to suggest a joke in text and in 1999 the designer shigek Karita, and I could be saying that wrong, created the world's first tiny digital smiley face we know, we now know as emojis. They were then used on mobile phones in Japan. 
Remember how I said emojis would become relevant in the later chapter? Well, you're about to find out why. Apparently, emojis are a very serious business, and they are controlled by a strange organization. The, Unico the Unicode Consortium approves what emojis are used. One of the voting members of the organization is Berkeley, and another is the Ministry of Aquaf and Religious Affairs. I don't know who the fuck that is. The governmental body in the... Oh, Sultanate of Oman, of Oman, Sultanate of Oman, Oman, oh God, that is responsible for overseeing all matters related to the religious affairs. So wait, are emojis a religious affair? Oddly enough, Kor Rory is an ancient temple in the Sultanate of Oman. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Said to have once belonged to the Queen of Sheba, the legendary woman who made a deal with King Solomon in exchange for 666 talents of gold supposedly he, yeah, he goes dude he goes on because check this out check this out so it gets it gets spicy so for 66 for 666 talents of gold supposedly this deal involves solomon trading his hidden knowledge and this is weird because we're talking about goetic magic of demonic sigils of which there were 72 the same amount of original core emojis even more wow. odd in an archaeological, an archaeologist named Wendell Phillips was from Berkeley, made an expedition to another temple that supposedly belonged to the same queen in Yemen near the city of called Marib. Yeah. And it said at one point Marib was the capital of Sabah, the kingdom of the biblical queen of Sheba, who was set to rule after the expedition. Da -da -da. Oldish concession. And something might wanted to Solomon Queen And in the context of emojis being demonic sigils, emojis sound a lot like the mimetic mind virus. Okay, so he goes on to the language of hieroglyphic like symbols. Perhaps they are more powerful than we realize. So essentially that that King Solomon connection is kind of weird. Where it's the same people from the city that the Queen of Sheba, who made the deal with King Solomon, and there were 72 original emojis. And the 72 demonic sigils, which are the keys of Solomon, right? That's the keys of Solomon in Goetic Magic. And yeah. essentially, when you draw this sigil, you can use a demon for whatever it is that you want to use him for. Yeah, and that, that to me connects with, with Jung also. Um, and Crowley went back and forth on that. So he thought initially, early in his career... Um, you want to call it a career it's kind of a weird word but it, early in his life uh he thought that magic and specifically solomonic magic was it's i don't want to say in your head but sort of what i was talking about earlier where it's sort of like this the archetypes unconscious imaginative phenomena of like jumping between the unconscious and conscious dimensions um and which doesn't take away from it by the way i don't think that takes away from it uh, it doesn't mean that it's not real. It's just as real as anything else. Um, and, but then later on, he kind of flipped on that and said, no, like there are sort of things that are out there, like demons and demons and angels that are outside of your mind or, or, or what have you. And uh, But I tend to go with the, the first. I'm kind of a union, if you couldn't tell. Um, but I think that in Goetic Magic, those sort of names of demons are parts of your fractured mind of yourself. They're repressed parts of you. So like a, a negative part of your own mind 
that can sort of control you, you know, like, like let's call it rage or something. Um, it, the rage that's inside of you when it comes up takes over and it is sort of demonic. Um, and you're so, sort of the one holding it all together. And there's all these emotions that we could give names to. And basically in goetic magic, they're just calling, they're giving them names, but they're demonic names. Um, and you mm -hmm. call them forth and master them. And, and in Jung, his whole thing of, of, individuation, of individuation is calling forth the repressed parts of yourself or your shadow and that sort of thing, negative aspects of you that you don't wish to see, calling them into being, you know, sort of analyzing them and working through them and um, mastering them, and, which is what you do in Solomonic magic. You literally um, sort of bind these things to you. And once you've bound all of them, you're a, a complete person. You know, you know, in in Jungian terms, you're you've sort of uh, achieved union with yourself, um, and sort of, you know, sort of rounded up all the little demons in your in your own mind. Um, so that's how I like to think about it. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really. I mean, I guess you could be. So that's my dog squeaking her toys. Oh, um, that was so on point, bro. <laughs> I got a little dog now. Oh, you got a new dog? Yeah. Is that a pug? Yeah. Oh man. Well, I think I was thinking about pugs actually the other day. That's weird. Yeah, every, every magician has a black dog. <laughs> I'm gonna be doing a an episode on familiars and like the the greatest the greatest hit. So Paracelsus' white horse, right? That was given to him by the devil. He could travel long distances without getting tired or whatever. But this idea of and I'm trying to find where Crowley talks about the goetic demons being part of your subconscious. Yeah. Because he wrote about Goetia and it would make a lot of sense. And I've heard people refer to Carl Jung's work as a the occult, but through a exactly. through yes. an academic lens. Through it an academic is. lens. Exactly. Through a psych a psychologist studying the occult and mystical phenomena. Uh, I mean, you can see that, right? He has books on flying saucers and books on alchemy and books on uh, dreams and books on actual occultism. Like, so it's, it's, he's, he was no stranger to all of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the Red Book and things like that, he was practicing, um, what do they call it? Like the guided writing. What do they call that? Channeled writing. Yeah, there's a name for it. It starts with an A, I think. I feel stupid right now. But, you know, basically you, you just start writing and something comes through. And yeah. Whether that's, you know, in his mind, that's your unconscious. Your unconscious is, is writing and you're not aware of what it's doing. Um, and he sort of thinks the same thing in like a Ouija, Ouija board, you know, that mm -hmm. if you were to ask Jung, he thinks it's the lower part of your mind sort of coming out and speaking to you. Mm -hmm. um, and those and same thing with divination, like the tarot and things like that, that you're, it's not, um, it's sort of these other parts of your mind, higher or lower, what it, you know, it could be your guardian angel, or it could be your unconscious mind that's giving you the answer, you know, to your question and saying like, look, you, you really do know, it's just not the conscious you, you know, you know what the answer is sort of thing. Yeah. It's Nietzsche's Ubermensch where you become this overman, this superman that's able to do things yeah. that you wouldn't otherwise do yeah and i'm a i'm a huge in nietzsche we could do several videos <laughs> on that 
But actually, to go back to the Neoplatonists, they are, they were into the same thing. So they were into super subjectivity. Uh, and super subjectivity is to, it's basically their idea of gnosis or, you know, sort of their end goal of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in ascetic pra- practices, the goal is objectivity. So you actually sort of want to become an object. You know, I'm going to sit so still that I turn into a rock, you know, like that sort of thing. You sort of, uh, you're sort of dissolving the mind. You're obliterating the mind. You're obliterating Bro, the subject to become the object. I thought about this weird concept on my last podcast. I said, we were talking about Kabbalah and we'd start talking about manifestation, not manifestation, reincarnation. And I asked myself, I said, I wonder how many ladybugs, I mean, just taking an insect, for example, are conscious like that. They were somebody and they were reincarnated as a ladybug. So on the outside, you see a regular, you see a regular ladybug, but then on the inside, it's just like a person like, like wanting to break free. Like wanting to break free because they just got reincarnated as a fucking locust or a grasshopper or something. Can you imagine, bro? If no. you piece out of this, <laughs> talked about that. Nietzsche said that animals, that all animals are in a in a state of religious bliss. Whoa. At all times, yeah. That that was interesting. Religious um, bliss. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's deep. Oh, the super subjectivity though. So. In ascetic religions and spiritual systems, you want to sort of uh, disobjectify or something. You want to turn into an object. You want to obliterate the self and sort of go downwards. Um, And in sort of that ubermensch, uh, high vitality philosophy or spirituality, it's almost the exact opposite. So instead of I want to become nothing, you say I want to become everything. You know, and whether there's those things could just be a circle, right? There's like no difference. But in sort of in the philosophy of it or the motivation behind it, there is. Um, and in magical traditions and um, Neoplatonic traditions, Nietzschean um, traditions, you, you sort of want to become a super subject. So you become everything. Um, and, and the way one of the metaphors they use is. They say, if you want to find a needle in a haystack, you burn the hay. And all you have left is the needle. Mm -hmm. That that was really interesting. You become the needle. So that's the Neoplatonist, which we have have the Pythagoreans. You have the Platonist, you know, Neopythagoreans. Yeah, they're directly in. They are. They're all Neopythagorean as well. Yeah. They're directly in that lineage. You have Pythagoras, Socrates, Plato. I know mm-hmm. there's people in between, but you, you get the idea. And then down to Aristotle. Uh, and there's a little bit of a break there um, as the Roman Empire is sort of like getting getting larger and the Greek Empire is dissolving. Um, and people are kind of like, all right, like we have Aristotle and Plato. Like, I think we're good. And then, you know, there's hundred or 200 years or so. And then you have Plotinus pops up uh, in Egypt. I think he lived in Alexandria. 
and Plotinus was the revival of what they call Neoplatonism. Uh, so he went back to Plato. He had a more mystical approach to it all. Um, it's it's kind. Of, they say that Neoplatonism is kind of like the the secret uh, Platonism. So it's sort of like the aspects of Plato and Socrates and Pythagoras that were secrets that they didn't teach you unless you were initiated. They say that the Neoplatonists basically were just make, taking that all public. So it's kind of the weirder side of Greek philosophy. It's very magical. So they have what's called theurgy, um, which is mm -hmm. kind of what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, using outside forces for manifesting yeah. things in the yeah, real synthetic world. synthetic magic. Yes. Um, and harmony and all these sort of things and magical rituals um, and contemplation and exercises like that to become like that super subject and sort of create a union with the one or the monad. Uh, so really, really interesting. So this concept of, you said it was super subjectivity. Su Super so I've never I've never heard about that before. Super so so you're supposed to what dissolve into like the alchemist he dissolves into space and time or something like that or what yeah, do, do they know what the goal of that was to to what you said to become one with the monad with the with the source yeah. is that yeah yeah it is um, but they think it's sort of uh, um, how would you phrase it sort of like engulfing everything or. Uh, I mean, the term they would use if you're reading like Yambukas or something mm -hmm. would be uh, comprehending everything. Mm. So sort of to come to a full understanding of the world as it is would be like this transcendent state. And that's you sort of overarching everything else. It's not you dissolving down into an object, you know, sort of like the body is just like an object and I just become, myself becomes obliterated. It's more like I'm transcending up and overseeing everything else, you know, as sort of a God or something or, or yeah, becoming one with God. The uh, Grafa Dogmata is what? The same thing in the end, it's more like a philosophy of how you're getting there, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, the, the uh, Grafa Dogmata, which is Plato's unwritten doctrines, how you're saying that the, yeah. the it, he said, maybe these guys were full of shit, but the the that it was so wild so crazy yeah. that he couldn't even write it down because it would just you wouldn't even be able to handle it that's how yeah. crazy and wild it is and i don't know if you watched any of the a voyage to cartesius to the world of cartesius book that i that i covered but something that's really been bugging me that it relates to to young and i came across something today about it but in that book, essentially, he's talking about Descartes hidden. What I what I connected it to being his hidden, his his biggest scientific discovery after after he had the series of those dreams, Descartes. Yeah, the dreams are crazy. He's the like dreams that he interpreted, like he he crazy. wrote this whole thing on his dreams, like it was crazy. But after he had those dreams, the mainstream narrative is oh. He just, you know, his meditations and da da da. That's fine. He, yeah, yeah. He just, he just, whatever. It was whatever. But then in this book, because I remember him saying, "I have made the the 
and I'm paraphrasing, the, the greatest discovery of all time, something like that, something along those lines, after he had come yeah, they all back. They say that. Too. Yeah. Hey, I think it was uh, Hegel said basically that history ends with him. Like <laughs> I never, I haven't gotten into his stuff, but I, yeah. like, I'm a little familiar with it, but I haven't really gotten into it. Yeah, like the last man thing. And then Wittgenstein, um, he retired. So he wrote the Tractatus. And he said, yeah, this is it. Like, I answered all the questions. And he retired from philosophy for, like, 20 years. Anyways, you can go back to what you're saying. But they all think they got it solved. Yeah, so so he essentially, the discovery was the, the Cartesian coordinate system, right? That's what they say it was. But I think it's something much, much deeper than that. And essentially, in this book, they talk about how Descartes figured a way to project his consciousness from his body into, and this is in, from 16... Mid 1600s. So this was the first time ever that outer space was used in the science fiction mm. aspect of, of the word, like outer space, like science fiction, sci-fi. That's the first time it was ever used. And essentially they're able to project their, their subconscious, their, their consciousness to outer space. And they go to the moon and they go to all these other worlds where they, where they talk to Aristotle, they talk to all these other, the greatest philosophers, and they all have their own worlds in, in outer space. But the book goes on, and it's talking about all this crazy-ass shit where the guy, they're talking about creating galaxies and doing all, and I know people, some I can already hear in the comments, space is fake and gay, whatever, just, just forget about that part. But he goes on to say all this crazy stuff. And this Gabriel Daniel guy that we don't even really know anything about. He was a, a René Descartes esotericist. And we tried to do a decode on him, but we couldn't find anything on him. Gabriel Daniel, two first names. So he gets to the end after talking about how a homunculus takes over your body and all this crazy shit, bro. This crazy, yeah. crazy yeah. stuff. He goes, but. I'm telling you all this right now, but there's one thing I can't reveal to you that's going to blow your mind. That's going to just obliterate and drive you insane. I can't reveal to you the secrets of magnetism. Out of mind, this is after a book that he's after the entire story where he's written about projecting your subconscious by sniffing this weird snuff from a box that Rene Descartes had and he, he was actually killed because the doctors came through when he was in this other realm and they just bled him while as he was in this other realm. So he was too weak to come back into his body and all this craziness. He goes, but there's one thing I can't talk to you about. It's a magnetism. And in, in the book, Aeon, Carl Jung talks about the hidden God that comes from the North that is activated through magnetism wow. and i came across yesterday another thing about magnetism where yeah, it's same i mean well so, people like walter russell and ken wheeler uh tesla and all those guys like you dig down those rabbit holes it's mind-blowing so to thomas aquinas magnetism is a n quote occult virtue which man is not able capable of explaining this was a profoundly anti-scientific viewpoint and an abomination not to probe hubristically into the working of the world. Isaac Newton could not have formulated his gravitational theory without a belief 
in the yeah. occult forces. And way into occultism 100% bro he was an alchemist and everything so this idea and I've been trying to really dig away at what they're trying to get at with this whole magnetism thing and this hidden god that they talk about well so magnetism is interesting because in what you're talking about like wave theory and magnetism um, electricity and dielectricity and all those kinds of things highly recommend listening to Ken Wheeler, reading Walter Russell, and obviously Tesla and people like that. Those guys, I can't do any justice to, to what they have explained. Um, but what's interesting, I can't really speak to magnetism per se because I'm no uh, scientist in that way. But the philosophy behind it, like what you're saying about this God is, and all that is really interesting because, again the philosopher I mentioned earlier, Alfred North Whitehead, he believed that um, our current view of the world as made of matter in linear time could not explain things like magnetism, which you just said, like waves and things like that, because they're not made out of particles, you know, magnetism and, um, and waves are like forces, you know, and they're not, you can't pin them down. There is no Cartesian plane for them. Um, and that's a problem. And so that sort of is this other godlike force. Um, and Alfred North Whitehead, basically, his, he's, a, he's a sort of a Neoplatonist too. He's from the, like the 1940s, but I would call him a neo, Neoplatonist or something um, because his philosophy of it's called process. It was a mathematician, huh? Yeah, mathematician, and then he became a philosopher afterwards. Uh, he has process philosophy. And his view of the world is really interesting. Basically, he, he thought that everything is constantly moving at any given point. Everything is constantly into a state of becoming. You know, every moment is sort of beat almost like a movie is like a frame by frame of um, creating the next moment that there is no sort of hard reality. Uh, Oh, wow. That's really interesting. So he's talking about Descartes here. So process and reality is a book. I'm Uh, reading it right now. Yeah. It's amazing. So dense. You wouldn't, I've read, 50 pages and I probably have 50 pages of notes <laughs> on this. It's insane. Basically the crux of it is he believes that the world is made of creativity. The world is, is the world is not a, uh, there are no things. There's only processes. Basically there's no static things in the world. There's no matter and atoms and um, boxes and chairs there are, but they're processes. They're constantly sort of um, moving forward in time and changing. Nothing is, is staying still. And he had a platonic view, so he thought that there's this realm of ideal forms, mm-hmm. you know, sort of eternal platonic forms. Abstractions emanates, is what he called it? Yeah, that emanates from. And then he basically thought that there's this realm of eternal forms there's some kind of creative mind intellect process that turns the uh, infinite possibility of forms 
you know, so like, let's take a, a, you know, a leaf, for example, or something. And there's an infinite possibility of forms that that leaf could take, you know, of, of tiny little differences in, in how the leaf looks. And something is mediating process of that infinite, those infinite possibilities and what actually occurs. So something is sort of choosing from the infinite possibilities and choosing what actually happens in the world. And he basically thinks that that's constantly going on. There's constantly this um, mind, this, this creative process going on. Uh, it's and then obviously it's creating novel things too, which is really interesting. So new things are happening all the time. It's a really wacky philosophy, but it's so good. I highly recommend looking into him. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading a little bit of this. I'll probably download this book. He talks about how, how there is no mind-body dualism, and it goes... Yeah, he's an honest. He, he thought that the world is made up out of a process, not a substance. Interesting. Yeah. And, yeah, because Descartes, he talked about his the Cartesian mechanistic universe theory, where it was how you're saying everything was pretty much... there. There were three different levels of of matter and they're all in constant they're rubbing up against each other in, in constant motion everything is moving around and there are certain levels of matter that we can see and other certain ones that we can't and anyways it goes on and on but don't you kind of sort of see bro where all these philosophers and all these minds they kind of sort of have the same idea and concept but they just switch it up just a little bit and that's why i say i think that we all that we not we but they have i think that humanity as a whole has the big the big picture that the, there's a bigger picture there's something bigger that we can't explain except that the pieces to the puzzle are all fucked up they're yeah. all shuffled around we don't know it's, how we don't have the right order yeah yeah so let's talk a little bit about the byzantine empire because i know I, I wanted to focus on the plato and then you kind of talk about plotinus and he yeah, was I that kind of leads up into it so you have plotinus who sort of reignites philosophy um he wrote the enneads and some other some other he actually has a, a book that's a response to gnosticism that's good it's really short you can read it you just it's, he basically shreds Gnosticism, like their philosophy, really <laughs> short. You, you, know, you might not agree with all of it, but it's his philosophy versus their philosophy, and he just roasts it. Really great. Um, after him, one of his students was named Porphyry. Uh, he's been super influential. All the Neoplatonists are influential in occultism, for sure, all of them, especially in Renaissance occultism. They're, they all basically were Neoplatonists. Um, you get Porphyry. Uh, after Porphyry, you get Iamblichus, who's probably the most up your alley. He uh, he wrote a the definitive biography of Pythagoras um, by Iamblichus, which is great. Uh, that's still in print if anyone wants to buy it or read it. Uh, and he was the trippiest out of the bunch, basically. So he's kind of the, the well, him and Proclus, the two of them were sort of the end of the line for Neoplatonism, and they were the trippiest. So it kind of just kept getting weirder and weirder um, 
as it went on. And, you know, that could just be secrets becoming more public or something. Um, but Iamblichus and Proclus were all in on astrology, magic. Well, they called it theurgy. It's more or less magic. Um, they were into all, divination, you name it. Um, they, they were into it. And they had huge influences on uh, Sufism, Sufism, uh, on is Islamic thought, on Christian mysticism, and on and on and on, all the way up until today. And sort of to lead into the Byzantine Empire, obviously those guys were Greco-Roman. Most of them, yeah, they were living in the, the Roman Empire, uh, mostly in Egypt. But uh, they were in like this Greek tradition of, of philosophy. So it's kind of a feels weird calling them Roman because they're like they so they so identify with Plato and these these people, um, but they're Greco-Roman, and of course the one one of the things that we wanted to talk talk about tonight is the Greco-Roman Empire. So the one of the most overlooked aspects or parts of Western history is the Byzantine what we call the Byzantine Empire. Um, it's also referred to as the Eastern Roman Empire, um, or even just the Roman Empire, depending on what year you're looking at. Um, and so interesting to look into it. I really highly recommend doing your own research, guys, uh, on the Byzantines. Uh, it's inexhaustible and so fascinating and so overlooked. I mean, most of us, at least me in school, I. You know, I heard mentions of Constantinople as being like a trade trade hub and you know, may have heard a few things about the Byzantine Empire, but nothing in depth. And that is 100% on purpose. Um, I don't want to get too conspiracy-ish, but this really is not. Um, basically, the Roman Empire was massive. It encompassed, you know, all of Southern Europe, uh, North Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Eastern Europe, just humongous, which ended up being part of its downfall. So in the 300s, Emperor Constantine was like, all right, like Rome is a terrible uh, strategic city. It's land, I think, it, I believe it's landlocked. Um, so it's not on like a major port. You can be surrounded on all sides. Uh, it's on like a, I forgot all the reasons, but it's like a flat plane or something. It's just, it's awful. And they kept just getting wrecked by these, these Vikings. They're like, all right, we need like to just find a perfect city um, that's on a perfect port. You know, it has one way in, one way out sort of thing, easy to defend and just set up shop there. And so Constantine, uh, who, by the way, was the first Christian emperor uh, and that's another reason why he wanted to move the capital because he kind of wanted to start a new thing and make it like super Christian. Um, One thing I heard was that he didn't convert until he died. Was that true? Or was that his mom? No, that that is not true. He didn't get baptized till he died. Okay. Okay. I got you. This, that's actually a hilarious story because he didn't, he didn't want to be baptized until he was on his deathbed mm -hmm. because he didn't want to ba get baptized and then sin afterwards. <laughs> You know what I mean? So he didn't want to be like, oh, I got baptized, but then I made all these, you know, I made all these mistakes, mm -hmm. which kind of nullify it. You know, he wanted to be like, no, I want to get baptized and just go right to heaven, um, which is 
a really funny way. And we're talking about, we're not talking about any Joe Schmo. We're talking about Constantine that quite literally, or we have the Council of Nicaea happening around this time. So it's not just, oh, there were just some people. No, 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 no. These are at the core. Yeah, these are the big for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Constantine's, I mean, he's called Constantine the Great. He's one of the greatest Roman emperors. Uh, he moved the, he did some horrible things too, but he moved the, the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome, which is unthinkable, from Rome itself to Constantinople, which is modern day Istanbul in Turkey. It was, they, they made it impenetrable. It's on a major port between two seas a perfect strategic location and they basically set up shop there in 300 and and were there with some um you know ins and outs for over for about 1100 years the byzantine empire was ruling uh in in what is now modern day turkey um and nobody talks about it at least in the West, in, in America. Almost nobody talks about it. If you want to read books on the Roman Empire or whatever, the Mayans, or there's tomes. But if you look up Byzantine this, Byzantine that, you'll, you have to find some like one academic book. And this is an empire that for a th- over a thousand years was the most powerful empire on planet Earth. So I know people want to talk like Tartaria and all that kind of stuff. If you want like a real cons- real conspiracy, look at the Byzantines because they are shadow banned basically, um, and that that's on purpose. <laughs> it's on purpose, man, because in in about the year like one thousand ish or like eleven 1, hundred, I don't have the dates on hand. You had what was called the Great Schism. So you had the Pope who was still back in Rome, and you know you, if you go from three hundred to about eleven 1, hundred, that's hundreds and hundreds of years of these people being all the way um, in Constantinople. It's a long way from Rome, and they started developing their own beliefs, which were not... 1050, 1054. Okay. Um, Which were not in line with what the Pope liked and the Roman Catholics liked. Um, And they call it modern-day Greek Orthodox. Bro, this is... This is the schism where they were arguing about the bread. I've talked about this, where they were. Mm-hmm. So the, whether leavened yeah. or unleavened, is that how you say that? Leaven, leaven, and you, yeah. le, leaven bread should be used in the Eucharist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all the theological arguments are like hilarious and so hard to even understand. <laughs> but there was a lot more going on politically um, between the two of them. And basically they had a split. So they're like, all right, like, you guys, you're now the Eastern Roman Empire. You're not part of the Roman Empire anymore. And, you know, you can have your own religion. So they, they have their own patriarch, who's like their pope. Um, and they they were like, all right, we're on our own. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll do our own thing. They already were interesting. So the Byzantines spoke Greek. And, when, you know, when you think Roman Empire, you think Latin. But the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, was not speaking Latin. I'm sure most of them knew Latin, but they were speaking Greek. Um, so they had a little bit more of a classical air to them. They they were very Greek in culture. So like they all read the Odyssey and they were all 
studying uh, Greek classics, and they had Plato, um, who in the in Western Europe was not around. So Western Europe had Aristotle preserved, um, but Plato was not present in Western Europe during the Middle Ages. And a lot of people think that's why a lot of the vitality and mystery and interesting stuff was sucked out of Western Europe was because they didn't have Plato. They didn't have these uh, big hitters who were sort of being held in Constantinople. A lot of these cultural uh, pillars. And it's so fascinating because, you know, when you're studying history, you'll eventually run into the Middle Ages, medieval times, which is a thousand years from about 500 to about 1500, you know, give or take, where nothing happened, more or less. Yeah, that's why they're called the Dark Ages. There were just knights riding around, and, you know, you lived as a, a serf or a peasant. You just, like, hoed a field and ate, Yeah, like, the Knights skill. Templar, though, bro. Yeah, yeah, there's some interesting stuff. Well, that's Byzantine history, too, but we'll get to that. Oh. Um, you're just eating, like, stale bread, and you had, like, the monk haircut or something. It was, like, just life was awful. Um, and while during that exact same time, that exact 1,000 years, that is Byzantine history. It's going on at the same time. So in Western Europe, life is terrible. In Eastern Europe, in Constantinople, life is amazing. It's a flourishing empire. You know, the you, you look at Byzantine art and, and churches and things, they're just massive, golden, you know, high vitality, life force sort of culture. They're studying the classics. They've got all the stuff, you know, super inventive. I think me and you have talked before, but they had automatons. So they had steam powered. This is totally legit. They had steam powered mechanical animals birds and lions and smoke machines and things like that when you would walk into the emperor's uh court they would have two lions next to his uh throne that would roar they're mechanical and they would have bird uh gold and everything's made out of gold uh golden birds that would chirp and all that these things uh just insane kind of stuff this is going on at the same time as the mid Middle Ages, where nothing is happening. Uh, like ninety percent of the population are like actual peasants that are illiterate and stuff. And Constantinople is just balling. And basically, what the reason I'm saying all that is the Catholic Church, because of that schism, the Catholic Church is super resentful towards. Eastern Roman history and Constantinople because that's a different sect of Christianity to them. And they don't want people saying, hey, wait, those Orthodox Christians got some really cool stuff. You know, they're really, you know, they have this amazing art, they have amazing philosophy, they have automatons, and the, you know, the, the, their city hasn't been sacked in a thousand years, and that, you know, they're defeating all the greatest armies in the world, and they're continuing the lineage of the of the roman empire and all this stuff you know and, and the catholic church is like no we're just gonna like erase that and and you know everything that was going on in europe was just the middle ages nothing was going on uh, and so they try and really i think cover it up it seems like i mean it's the i don't tend towards conspiracy theories but how could you not end up there i mean for someone who's interested in it i 
you know, there's a handful of good books on what's over a thousand years of really interesting history. Uh, Byzantine history includes the Crusades, so the Knights Templar, of course. Uh, the Crusades were fought, we, I think we talked about this last time, but the Crusades were fought to protect Constantinople. Because, you know, Jerusalem's one thing, right? Jerusalem, I mean, Jerusalem was surrounded by Arabs and was held by Arabs, uh, by Muslims. And Christendom in Europe, you know, the sort of Christian Europe was like, oh God, like they're coming, you know. In Constantinople, in what would be modern day Turkey, is right next to the Middle East. So they're like, we're next. Like if they take Jerusalem, they're coming here and we're toast. And they basically convinced the Pope in Italy to call up the forces and be like, like, come on, like we got to go and push him back on, on Jerusalem. Because if they take that, like we're all, you know, if they take Constantinople, they're coming into Europe and we're completely screwed. Um, and so they sent all of these forces to Constantinople. So all the crusaders, all the Knights Templar were going to the emperor, the, the Byzantine em empire and taking his directions. You know, he was giving them passage across the Bosphorus into the Middle East and saying, you know, and sometimes even giving them land and things in return. So the, the Crusades and, and Templar history is Byzantine history. Um, and that's something, again, that sort of gets overlooked. And then... Uh, yeah, because they, the they, they were also trying to alchemically transform the world with the cathedrals that they were able to erect during this time as well. Yeah. The Hagia Sophia is, um, Hagia Sophia. You can look that up. I mean, it's one of the biggest churches in the world. It's still standing in Istanbul. It is, I will say, unfortunately a mosque now. I don't mean that with disrespect to Islam. I just mean that, um, it would be amazing to see it how it originally was with the mosaics and things. Um, so it's not that I care that it, it is a mosque. It's just that in the process of making a mosque, they, they did whitewash and tear down a lot of uh, its original artwork and things like that. And it's, you know, it's the number one tourist destination in Turkey. If you go today, that is insane. If you look up, um, just Byzantine architecture in general, the church, the churches that they were making were ridiculous. The mosaics and paintings, in, incredible. Um, their military power was insane. They they held off Attila the Hun. They held off uh, hordes of Arabs um, who conquered everyone else. Nobody could take Constantinople for a thousand years. Um, wow great pictures so f fun fun yeah. question do you think that was because they were just that legit or do you think that there was something else at the core I, I think really it was it was the strategic position of the city to be honest um it, you know in like uh the movie 300 i was i actually have 300 pulled up on one of the, uh, I think on one no of the way. tabs. <laughs> All right. So, you know, in the movie 300, how they like, they're facing the uh, Persians 
mm-hmm. and they funnel them into like that um, between the two mountains. It's like a pathway. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like they're, they're totally outnumbered, like ten to one. But if they can funnel all these people in, they stand a chance. That's how Constantinople was. Basically, there's one way in, one way out. They're on a peninsula. So imagine it's like Florida or something. You only have to defend one thing right in front of you. Um, and they just built up what are called the Theodosian walls, these massive walls. Uh, and then they had just a strategic position. And it, the wealth that existed in Constantinople was unimaginable. Unimaginable. I mean, I was reading a book called Byzantine Civilization by Stephen Runciman. And he he actually says that the wealth present in the peak of the Byzantine Empire is cannot even be comprehended in today's terms. The gold that they had, which is real wealth. Some say that they were transmuting that gold, bro. Probably. Yeah, and in magic, uh, Greco-Egyptian magic was commonplace. Um, really interesting is that they had the Greek. So it's su- such interesting history because of where they are. Basically, they're they're considered Romans, part of the Roman Empire. They speak Greek, so they have that Greek tradition. They're in more or less like the Middle East in Eastern Europe, so they're on the border of the Arabs. So they have that Arab influence, that Egyptian influence. Greek influence, Roman influence, uh, and they even have, they're the center of trade. So they're getting, the Silk Road comes right into Constantinople. So they're dealing with the Chinese and the Indians. So it's a very sort of melting pot type of thing. Um, and that, that I think is what makes their history so interesting because they have a little bit of everything. They're sort of syncretists uh, and definitely you're, your commoner, your everyday person in Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire was blending mystical traditions. So they were, they were making uh, magical talismans, but they were using Christian imagery. In a, you know, they'd have like a cross or something. You know, they'd have like a picture of Mary, but above that, they would have like an eye of Horus above it. So it was like they're always, they didn't really have a fixed identity. Um, and they had all these different backgrounds around them. So they were molding everything into one, um, which is very magical. And they were, they were taking Egyptian influence or taking Greek influence, um, Middle Eastern influence. They def- they had Solomonic magic present in Byzantium. We know that for a fact. Um, they had great alchemists and great magicians Michael Sellis is, is really important. He wrote a book on like demonology. Um, they had philosophers, of course, and yeah, just fascinating stuff. I, especially, I like all the stuff where your everyday person was basically participating in like magical type of things all the time. Have you read he this book? Totally... Yeah, I read that book. Nice. I'm I have it. it. I have it in my house. Yeah, so Byzantine magic. They even had Nordic and uh, Nordic and like Viking practices. 
coming down, like magical practices, rune type stuff. Um, because the Vikings and the, I mean, Vikings are a broad term, but uh, Scandinavians and Germanic people were coming to Constantinople as soldiers. So they would serve in like what was the Varangian Guard and they would pay these soldiers, foreign mercenaries, basically a lot of money, great money because they had no allegiance. You know, they didn't want to become, they didn't want to kill their general to become, you know, eventually become emperor or something. They didn't want to plot and scheme. They're like, oh, I just want to get paid. Like, I don't really care about Byzantine politics, you know, like I'm, I'm from Denmark or something. Uh, so they did it on purpose, the, the sort of secret service of the emperor were all Vikings. They called them the Varangian Guard. What? Really? Yeah. Yes. And, and of course, I mean, they're great soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they also employed eunuchs extensively. Eunuchs, like the whole court of the emperor would be eunuchs. Um, because they didn't have, again, they didn't want to backstab the emperor. They had no kids to fight for to set up for high positions you know they didn't want to they're not getting in those little games they're just like you know i don't have a a lineage or a legacy so i'm just gonna serve my emperor um and that actually that's one way that they avoided the middle ages because what led in one part to the middle ages or what defined it was feudalism where you know these families would become lords and dukes of whatever and they'd buy up all the land and they'd have serfs and peasants work on land and it would just be like one family rules over a whole area and it's terrible because you know, the family sucks they're just like a bunch of rich douches and then everyone else is illiterate so nothing gets done um in in the eastern roman empire and the byzantine empire that didn't happen in the same a thousand years primarily because high positions would be taken by eunuchs, given to eunuchs. So they avoided that familial, um, what do they call it when you like hire your son and stuff? Nepotism. Um, mm. They avoided that nepotistic tendency in that the setting things up solely for your family and just screwing everyone else, backstabbing the emperor and that sort of thing with eunuchs pretty creepy but still yeah but the the eunuch in game of thrones was uh a scheming he was a snake oh yeah he was scheming yeah (laughs) he was always scheming (laughs) the the thing was remember he's always scheming for whoever was Mm -hmm. the the king or queen you know whoever like even when he's scheming for daenerys he thought she was the true queen You see, so he wasn't scheming for his family, for his kids, for his, because that's when things get really messy. He was only scheming for whoever, whoever came into power. Uh, so that, that's sort of how they created it. In Plato's Republic, did he call for the philosopher kings to be castrated? Do you know? That I don't know, to be honest. Um, yeah, but it, Byzantine magic and things, like the book you just pulled up, is fascinating basically the book goes over a lot of the everyday things like evil eyes and um sort of paranoia uh, superstitions and things like that and how common magical practices were amulets 
uh, rings, talismans, uh, altars, and you know, a lot of times it's Christian magic. It's, it's you know, they're using amulets and talismans and altars, and, but they're using Christian imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily what we think of as magic because it, it was natural magic. It was, as long yeah, as so you weren't using back to theurgy, if you weren't using outside influences, yeah. then it was okay because you were using things that God put in nature already. Hence, this is why alchemy came forth because they were like, we're just mixing stuff together. God can't right. get mad at us because we're just putting, he, why, why would he put that tree there? And this right. other thing, if he, you know, we're just putting, we're just, the physicians were the magicians and the physician was exposing what already was in nature in order for the benefit of man. So he, they were only exposing what was already there. Similar to how the, the Plato believed that we already know everything. We're just, we just have to remember it, right? You have to remember yeah. all the knowledge you already born knowing everything. But yeah, I downloaded it, so it's, it's, I'm gonna take a look some, at this. I'll read a few notes I have. Well, yeah. one one of the things I, I mentioned, Michael Michael Sellis, Sellis, uh, he was actually like a skeptic. So he's a Byzantine scholar, and he it's just kind of funny. He was skeptical and wanted to investigate all of these magical occult type things, and in in doing so, he actually resurfaced them which is kind of, it's, he, he, <laughs> he totally did not accomplish what he wanted to do. So, so things like the Chaldean oracles, um, the hermetic corpus. Oh, this was a guy, a Greek monk back then. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he, he brought back the Chaldean oracles, the hermetic corpus, and Neoplatonic literature, right? And, and he they basically they hadn't been forgotten but they were not popular and he was like oh let me go back and look at all these things and prove that they're you know whatever this and that that they're silly or heretical and in doing so he brought them back to the mainstream and so now all of a sudden neoplatonism theurgy hermeticism the chaldean oracles um were all popular again which is kind of funny um and of course that he actually became a big figure in like magical traditions because he inadvertently, uh, like, you know, like that, like he wrote a book on demonology, but he's criticizing it, right? He's like skeptical of it. Okay. King James. (laughs) Yeah. Like King James. Yeah. He's like writing against it, but then all the occultists want to read it. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it has all these interesting details. Um, yeah, there's interesting stories like Zoe, the Empress Zoe, um, and, and that's another thing in Byzantine history. There were empresses, not just emperors. Um, so it was sort of a progressive society in many ways. The Empress Zoe had a statue of Jesus made with incredible materials, so it's like gold and all that. It was so lifelike. This is from the book. So lifelike that it could respond to requests by changing its color. What? And it could also answer it could also answer questions on the future by changing complexion. And she she offered perfumes as sacrifices to God and had an entire alchemical laboratory for making perfumes. So it's like this like highly feminine, like magical Christian 
thing going on. They had so many wacky things. <laughs> so it, I, I'm, I'm so interested by all of it. Bro, what in the world? Really? That's like, that is the most heretical thing I've heard today. <laughs> a statue of Jesus that yes. they infused with some sort of talismanic magic to invoke an entity into it in order for it to, to divinate to them. Uh-huh. What in the world? I mean, she was doing perfume alchemy, basically perfume magic. Anyways, that's um, not yeah. that's not sufflimigation, is it? Yeah, kind of, sort of. The burning of substances to produce fumes is part of magical rituals, and yeah, because so one thing that you because you keep mentioning mentioning talismans. One one interesting thing about this time as well was because John D was part of this too during that time, right? Because you said it was or was that 15th century. It, when does the Byzantine right? So this is this is what I'm gonna get to. Oh, 1450. This, okay, so this is before. This is where it gets really interesting, Juan. You just touched on a good point. You can see on that timeline that the Byzantine Empire falls in 1453. The Arabs finally, and I can tell the story real fast. Basically, uh, this guy had brought back gunpowder from China or somehow figured out the secret of gunpowder. <laughs> He's a Hungarian guy um, and brought it to the emperor at the time. And I think it was, his name was also Constantine. And there was a prophecy that the first and last emperor of the Empire would be named Constantine. He was like Constantine the 11th. Um, and there were a lot of prophecies that are really cool. And, this guy came and he said, hey, like, I have this gunpowder stuff. Like, let's build a huge cannon, uh, like a hundred foot long cannon, and we can take we can take on the Arabs. And the emperor was like, all right, man, like, I've got, like, the Arabs are on the doorstep. Like, get out of here. Like, I've, I've got better stuff to do. And, if, and the Hungarian guy, you know, he just, he's in it for the money. <laughs> so he went to the Arabs and was like, uh, I think they were the Turks at that point. And he was like, hey, I've got this gunpowder in the cannon. And they're like, all right, we're in. You know, we got to take down the, the walls of Constantinople. Like, no one's ever done it. They, Dude, they wheeled in. They created a, a uh, let me see how long this, look up the cannon that took down the walls of Constantinople. It's like 150 feet long or something insane. Every time they'd shoot it, like half the crew would die. <laughs> and dude, the, the, I'm not joking. The cannonball, the cannonball could go like one or two miles. The darn den Dardanelius, Dardanelius yeah. gun, weighing sixteen point eight tons, measuring twenty seven feet in length, yeah. is capable of delivering a crippling damage at a range of one point five. One and a half what miles. No. What? Yes. They've wheeled this thing in, shot down the walls of Constantinople, and that was game over. So he goes to Constantine, the 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 one the last one. Yeah. He says, forget about it. So then he yeah. goes to the other guys, like, yo, yes. I got this stuff. <laughs> he wants to tell his idea, basically. He's like, I know how to do this, like, just give me the dough. And they're like, sick, we're in. Um 
and <laughs> they used it and they took they took the the capital of the the Byzantine Empire and that was game over and never got taken back and now it's Turkey and Istanbul and it's been Muslim ever since and but what's interesting this is where it gets really fascinating and what they really don't tell you is that in 1453 when the Byzantine Emperor fell Empire fell the Arabs were they're actually not not so bad because uh, they said to the citizens of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire, they said, "Look, like this is ours. Like you just have to leave. Basically, you have to become Muslim or leave. Like they're not going to like slaughter all these people." And these citizens considered themselves Roman. Still, they called themselves Romans in the four- in fourteen fifty three. Still. Which is just, you know, another thing. They don't tell you this. They tell you the Roman Empire ended in like 500. But in 1453, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, called themselves Romans. And the emperor said, I'm the em- the Roman emperor, you know? They don't tell you that. Because they're of not the happy. Holy Roman Empire, right? Well, that's another thing. That was created um, basically for the Pope to say, no, look. This is the real lineage, oh. not you guys, not the or- Greek Orthodox fakers in in Constantinople. Actually, Charlemagne and the Catholic boys are, you know, the Franks and so on are the real lineage. This is the Holy Roman Empire, and anyways, and that was totally in in spite of the Byzantines. They did everything they can, like you just pointed out, to sort of smear and keep it keep it down. Um, and in 1453, when it fell, they said, "All right, we're Romans. So where do we go when when the city falls? We go back to Rome." And so all the Greek speaking uh, Greek speaking citizens of Constantinople and Byzantine Empire, they weren't going to become Muslims. They weren't going to stay in a Arab occupied or Turk occupied um, city. So they went back to Italy, to Rome. This is all legit history. And what happens after the Byzantine culture floods in back into Italy? The Renaissance. The Renaissance is Byzantine culture coming back into Western Europe and revitalizing it out of the Dark Ages. Whoa. The Dark Ages ended when the Byzantines came back to Western Europe. They brought back with them Plato. They brought back the Hermetic Corpus, which is in Greek. This is interesting. The Hermetic Corpus was not translated into Latin until 1471. It was in Greek the whole time. So they had the Hermetic Corpus in in Constantinople. They didn't have it in Western Europe. They didn't have the trippy business, you know, the alchemy. (laughs) I mean, it was going on, you know, there's, there's. uh, Since the third century, because I mean, that's where in Egypt is where it originated. According to mainstream history. Tradition was going, was went straight into the Byzantine Empire. Mm -hmm. It was present in the Byzantine Empire. Um, that Greco-Egyptian uh, magical tradition. Yeah, the magical on. papyrus as, as well. Yeah. You have that. Ah. All, that ah. Yeah, that was all going on in Constantinople. 
And when the city fell and they went back to Rome, they brought with them Plato and all this trippy occult business um, and revitalized. And they brought with them the classics, Greek sculpture, Greek painting, you know, all of this stuff, which you, which is the Renaissance, you know, and all of a sudden Western Europe is like, all right, we're back, you know, out of nowhere in the Catholic <laughs> church and in Western history, you basically, that's what they tell you. They're like, Oh, the Renaissance just happened. Like, you know, they say, Oh, you know, we had like mercantile capitalism and the merchants of Venice and, you know, people were a little better off. And so the feudal system ended and that's it. That is not it. That is one factor. But in reality, it's the culture flooding in from the East, bringing back all these classical traditions back to Western Europe. And so that's the true history, um, which you never hear about. Uh, the Hermetic Corpus, the, uh, Neoplatonism, uh, Greco-Egyptian magic, all this stuff comes back. In a, in a big way in the renaissance and then you know right after that in like the 1500s you start getting all the big hitters we know of john d and on and on and on everyone we're familiar with um and you get uh rudolph you know rudolph the second in prague um which is not that far from uh, constantinople and he's trying to carry on like that sort of tradition uh and revitalizing Europe and you know the occult ways and esoteric stuff and it you know it comes back it was gone for a thousand years more or less um, could have been held in secret societies and stuff for sure in Western Europe like the Templars and the Rosicrucians and what have you but it was out in the open in Eastern Europe and then in the Renaissance it's back out in the open more or less it's an interesting, uh, you know, molding, basically, mm. combination you don't, you don't really hear about. Yeah, so it has this, this reemergence. It's, it's this, this where it, how you're saying it was underground, yeah. and then it kind of popped its head back up, and then goes back underground around the 17th, 18th century, where it starts to die off, but not because of that, because of, Modern day, well, I'm talking about alchemy, you know, modern day chemistry, everything else is more not because again, this is also during the time where you had Descartes and all the all the greatest minds like around this time, the 15, 16. And one thing I wanted to point out because you were mentioning talismans and all these things at the core of talismans is mathematics, which we know that John D and all these great minds were mathematicians, they were polymaths, they were. These guys that knew everything and, and the operation of creating a talisman involves astrology, the alignment of the planets, so astronomy, for those that believe in planets, and all these things. So it was mathematically encoded, pretty much is what a talisman is. Like they're using mathematics to imprint something on that piece of whatever it is in order to bring forth these properties that were otherwise supernatural or who, who knows but to charge it with a certain sort of energy and alkindi i think was ninth century so this is before that but either way, like the stellar rays and harnessing those rays from the celestial bodies to charge these items as well there is in i believe it was i want to say ninth century is islamic 
talismanic magic where they talked about using talismans to quite literally warp people's perceptions and put phantasms in their minds and make them see things that they wouldn't otherwise see in real time. And they're talking about that's talismanic magic. That's <laughs> yeah. these people yeah. at, at that time. So some other notes that I had was that this is kind of interesting was that in uh, Byzantium and actually let me clear up that term before I even continue. Byzantium and the Byzantine Empire is a term. This is totally coined by Catholic and Protestant historians in like the 1700s, 1800s. It is a new term. The people of Constantinople called themselves Romans. They considered themselves the Eastern Roman Empire. The term Byzantine and Byzantium are basically derogatory terms. They're terms created by uh, Christian historians who want to distance that empire from their version of Christianity. So they give them this name that makes it sound so foreign. You know, you hear really? Empire, it sounds like some Arab, that, you know, it sounds like something you've, you have no idea what it even is. What is Byzantine? What does it even mean? Mm-hmm. And actually the, the word is a legend. They, it basically means nothing. The legend is that the guy who founded the village where Constantinople ended up being, you know, hundreds or thousands of years later, that his name is Byzant or something. You know, and it's like totally just a, it's a story they make up to, to, um, to, yeah, 1770. You know, this is a recent term. Wait, and it was, what? So what they named it way after it was actually yes. a thing it was never called that no one in the byzantine empire had ever heard the word byzantine or byzantium in their life you this term was created to distance them and smear them and keep them from claiming roman lineage you see so if we can label them something else then they are something else, you know, as sort of we talked earlier. Anyways, so that's that just seals the deal in terms of them being hidden, them being suppressed in history in the West. Oh, um, uh, this just this just completely changed the name of the of the podcast because I was gonna name it something completely different, but I'm gonna dub this the the Byzantium Byzantium or however you want to say it, conspiracy, bro. Yeah, it is. Uh, but this is interesting. So with the Christian magic and the, the sort of blending of Christian, Egyptian, uh, Judaic, even Greek tra- traditions, the Christians at the time in Constantinople actually wanted to align their version of Christianity with older traditions, like the Greek tradition, mystical traditions, like the Egyptian mystical tra- traditions. Because they actually, which is funny, because, you know, in religions, you don't want to be a new religion. Kind of, that's not a good thing. You want to be an old religion, you know, it gives you like this credibility. So they actually wanted to align their Christianity with these ancient systems to give them more credibility. So they wanted to blend in Greek and Egyptian things and even Jewish things to sort of... uh, pump it up and be like, no, actually, like, we're just a continuation of this. Legitimize them, yeah. 
because to you know if it's like the year 300 and you're like yeah it's this guy from like 200 years ago people are like i don't know like so you want to sort of like hang on the coattails and anyways uh, that's funny bro that, that's that's pretty what else uh, oh they had something called greek fire I don't know if you've ever read about that. No, dude, you're you're it was a form of napalm. So, w- real quick, because we're talking about the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. You, the there's people who believe to to jump it into the whole Tartarian crowd because, essentially, I mean, I know Tartaria, quote unquote, comes a little bit after this time. I guess I, I don't even know when you would consider. Tartaria thing like timeline wise maybe what early 1900 uh, 1900s and on like anything right the gilded age what i don't know so that's tartaria but that conspiracy also linked to that there was no dark ages yeah that 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 didn't even that didn't even exist that they they just like blend everything together and just put it out i know that the adbc system that we know was joseph scaliger a Jesuit, I believe he was a French Jesuit that came up with the, the time chronology. I mean, as we know it today, and I believe Fomenko talked about this as well. And then you have the J and the year of our Lord and all these different things. What are your thoughts on that? That this time that you've been talking about quite literally didn't even exist and that it's just a fabrication and that it's, it was yeah. much shorter than what they claimed it to be. Cause this, we're talking about an empire, how you're saying was one of the, the longest ruling empires of all time definitely in western history yeah you know what i'm saying it's kind of like brushed over constantinople was the center of the world no exaggeration like any history book will tell you that constantinople was the trading center between east between asia and europe between the middle east and europe between all of these things it's smack in the middle they're on they had control of the Mediterranean, control of the Black Sea, uh, sorry, uh, Red Sea, Black Sea, whatever, whatever the sea is that they're on, I think Black Sea. Um, all of these things, they had naval control, they had uh, control over North Africa. They were by far the center of uh, culture, for sure, and wealth for about a thousand years. And we gloss over them like, you know, like it's no big deal. It's it's really amazing. Um, that that's what made me want to look into it. I'm like, all right, what's going on here? Like, what? I don't know about like time folding and time jumps and all of that. I can't really speak to it, but it's certainly interesting that in Europe you have a thousand years of nothing at the exact in exact parallel with a thousand years of byzantine history um damn and, bro and that's and then we yeah. focus more on the nothing than we do on the byzantine history yeah that's pretty wild <laughs> it's pretty wild it's going on at the exact same time like, yeah because how you're saying this when the split happened i'm not even thinking about the split i'm thinking that it's all one thing all together and yeah. it just kind of rolls over but no there was how you're saying that split yeah, Eastern and Western Europe were completely split. Western Europe did nothing. Eastern Europe was balling out. Just like gold, <laughs> you know, like gold gold buildings, just like robots and, you know, all that. Like they had all this crazy stuff. They had Greek fire, which I just touched on. 
Greek fire was a secret. Actually, it's in Game of Thrones. You know, like that green yes. liquid stuff that they like. What I forgot what they call it, but they pour it on like the water and. Oh, well, they blow up. it. They blow the queen up at the end of it with the whole thing underneath the. Yes, that's Greek fire. So in the Byzantine Empire, which is a fake term, but in the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> Um, they had Greek fire. It was a secret. No one knew what it was made out of except the people who made it. And it was like a guild. Like you couldn't tell a secret. And it helped them defeat everyone. They were literally just like flame. They had cannons that would just shoot out fire. Like flamethrowers. And if if they were surrounded on the sea, they would just set the sea on fire. I mean, it was like unbelievable. And <laughs> it's so they didn't know what it was made out of and only the people who made it knew about what it was made out of yeah like anyone outside of the people making it hadn't guarded state secret wow however these mixtures used formulas different from the oh so the arabs the chinese and the mongols they had their own but these mixtures used formulas different from the byzantine greek fire which was closely guarded state secret They had flamethrowers, bro. Yeah, they had flamethrowers. They had automatons. Like, totally falling out on all fronts. And our history books just gloss over. Like, oh, yeah, Constantinople, you know, was like the new Roman Empire, Great Schism. You might hear some of that. They don't tell you all this crazy history. They don't tell you about Emperor Julian. Look him up, dude. Emperor Julian was... He was emperor for like two years. He was a full on, and the, the empire was Christian. He was not a Christian. He was a Neoplatonic, like Greek, uh, mystical emperor. He was initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. He was all in on Neoplatonism. Do I got the right guy here? This guy? Yes. 361 or 360. Yeah, Neoplatonic. Oh, two years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He was he was like a badass general, um, winning a bunch of battles. He died in battle, actually. Um, but he was like huge in revitalizing uh, like paganism and Greek like Greek paganism and Neoplatonism and all this stuff. He was initiated into the mysteries, you know. This is going on in the 300s. They don't tell you that, you know, that Roman emperors in the 300s are still being initiated into Greek mysteries. I mean, you know what I mean? He allowed Jews to build the Jewish, rebuild the Jewish temple. Mm. Okay. Yeah, there's another funny thing um, to show you how Western Europe. So down in the di- the ditches um, was that there's a funny story of Emperor Basil II. His niece uh, got married to an Italian, you know, like prince or whatever. Um, and there was not a lot of crossover between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Like they were not on friendly terms, but this was sort of a political thing. And at the wedding feast of his daughter, they saw her using a golden fork. It's a fork made out of like solid gold. 
and the Italians were horrified. They'd never seen a fork before. And they were horrified. They were like, these are forks that God gave you. Like, this is blasphemy. Like, you're not using God's forks, your hands, you know. And you could look up. There's, like, paintings of her, of this moment in history where, like, the fork is basically invented in Western Europe. Like, they were, act- they were like, barbarians, <laughs> you know. Meanwhile, in, East- in the Byzantine Empire, they're, like, fully civilized, like, all this stuff. I don't know. I, I have so much fun just juxtaposing the two. It's something I've definitely have not looked into because we're so focused on, on, I mean, me, I'm focused on like the woo stuff and obviously not saying that this didn't happen because there is obviously fuckery afoot with mainstream history, which we have to be careful for. So of course they're going to, they're going to omit certain details and change, change things up in order to benefit their cause whatever that may be if you believe in that as well like if there is this cabal of people that are at the center of it all orchestrating these things and pulling the strings if you want to believe that because some people don't don't believe in that either but yeah this is really fascinating man with as far as everything that we've covered and i never knew it was that interesting but because yeah i've read about the templars i've read about what happens after this era i've read about plato i've read about pythagoras all these guys that kind of kick were at the forefront of there's it's so empty. many books on all of those things. Yeah. And you're like, wait, like all this is all, everything you just mentioned is surrounding this part of history. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing on that part of history. You know, you're like, wait, I know everything about the Renaissance. I know everything about Greek and Roman history. I know Caesar. and all, you know. But in between all that, it's just they used white out and they're like, wait, no, those people write the, are write the book, bro. Yeah. Yeah. You write I, it. I probably will at some point. <laughs> there's, a few, there's a few good books, um, but they're not they're not amazing. There's not enough scholarship for sure. Um, so I say for the next one, we talk about Rudolph. We were supposed I, to talk about Rudolph on this one, but we didn't. But we'll talk about Rudolph on the next one, and then we can segue it you know, with John D., Edward Kelly. Always. I've been looking into some stuff as far as that goes. Yeah, I'll, I'll do more research. I know my stuff on Rudolph, but John D and Edward Kelly, I need to do. And Paracelsus. I mean, we could talk Paracelsus too, bro. Yeah. Like that dude was on some shit for real. Like <laughs> yeah, during this he, time. Yeah, and Rudolph had um, Rudolph had Kepler there too. Kepler and Tycho. He had yeah, Tycho. He had a bunch of guys. Bro, he had a he had the crew. He had two hundred alchemists working under him. Oh, Tycho Brahe was another guy that he had what the fake nose. He had the fake nose on there, and he had a a, a reindeer or or something that's a best friend. <laughs> Did you ever hear that well, story? Edward Kelly, didn't Edward Kelly had no ears, right? Edward Kelly allegedly had no ears. He was a cropped eared wizard. Yeah. Nice. So, okay. yeah, dude, we'll we'll get into that on the on the next one, and we'll I'll invite my friend who who's yeah. obsessed with with Rudolph as well, and we can chop it up with him. What if, what do you uh? What are you reading lately? Right now, what I'm reading is... So... I'm in the middle of a couple things, actually. So I got... The reason I asked you about that artist at the beginning was... 
I'm reading The Laurel Turns Green by my friend Alexander Rivera. He was co-author with Tracy Twyman on the Baphomet book, and I'm reading his book. He's going to be on the show. We're going to talk about it. Nice. And what else have I been reading? I've been reading. I've just been reading miscellaneous things as far as that goes. I told you I'm skimming again through The Devil's Doctor by Philip Ball because it's a really good read. It's the I love history that's entertaining as to to read you know to uh, while you're reading it's telling you real things historically but he's also very poetic in the way he says things so and the reason i'm rereading that book is because i want to do an episode on paracelsus because i believe that paracelsus is an an episode on its entire just one episode on on his own but there's so many things about him that are around that it's just like where do you pinpoint and i want to focus more on like the non-mainstream stuff with with them like the 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 esoteric occulted stuff not like he was born here and he did this like no i want to talk about like some other crazy shit that he was into like he believed in giants and dwarves and fairies and all these crazy you know like the the cool parts of the character so i just been reading a whole bunch of miscellaneous stuff research papers and as far as books yeah i just finished what did i just finish uh peter lavenda's the Stairway to Heaven, I think it's called. I finished that recently. Peter Lavenda. Stairway. Yeah, Stairway to Heaven. It's. Yeah, look it up, bro. Chinese alchemist, Jewish Kabbalist, and something, something or other. I finished that recently. I read my friend. Yeah, it's good. uh, You might like. Which one? Called The Last Kings of Shanghai. It's about uh, Jews in China. It's crazy. Oh, and basically, I think it was, yeah, Shanghai was like had a huge Jewish population. Yeah, Interesting. it's crazy. And they like, they were huge, powerful families in China. Um, they're white, like European Jews living in China in exile, mostly. That's um, not a conspiracy at all, huh? No, it's not. It basically it was weird. It was a it was like a loophole of sorts where like the only two countries I think that were still allowing Jews in with like I don't I don't remember the details, but without like some kind of visa or something were Germany and China. And obviously we know what happened, the ones that went to Germany. No one out. But yeah. The ones that went to China ended up being like extremely successful financially and actually uh they i mean they became like billionaire families in china Whoa. and people again no one ever talks about it like they were like european jews in china mm-hmm. they were like a big part of the country big populations thousands i'll check and that out do you have anything else on there no just that book but basically this is where it gets weird is because when World War II ends and they create Israel, a lot of the Jews who ended up populating Israel were the ones from China. So, yeah, they're not Chinese. Like, they're European, you know. But they were like, oh, like, the Holy Land's back. Like, we have a place for us, you know. Like, I don't want to be in China. So they all left and went to Israel. (laughs) Swear to God, dude. You can read the book. It's like, it's true. Wow. Okay, that that sounds really interesting too. So well, the ones in Europe were like killed, or they went to America or like South America or 
you know, other parts of Europe, they were like, oh, Israel? I don't know. Like, <laughs> but the ones who were in China were like, I, I got to get out of China. Like, this is, you know. Anyways. Interesting. I'll check it out. And then how many books do you read at a time, bro? Right now I'm reading three. Uh, I For a long time, my rule was to read one at a time. Um, but I've recently broken that because I'm so busy, which is kind of funny. I'm really busy and I end up reading like more widely because mm-hmm. I don't want to read like one book really slowly. Mm-hmm. I'd rather read like three books really slowly. Yeah, you know? me too. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting at least a little bit of, you know, and yeah. I, I luckily I read a lot young as a younger person, even in the last few years before I opened a bookstore. So I kind of got a lot of the classics out of the way and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I can focus on like things I'm really interested in. Right now I'm reading Process and Reality by Alfred North Whitehead, um, what we talked about earlier. I'm reading On the Mysteries by Ian Blickis, um, a Neoplatonist, translated by Thomas Taylor. Who's the I have that reader. one. I bought yeah. it from your store. And Yeah, amazing book. And I'm reading Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce as well. So there's three pretty tough ones, but I'm getting through them. I'm enjoying all of them. I take notes religiously. Mm. Um, so I, any thought that pops into my head or even if I'm reading some other source and it's analyzing the book or I think of something, I, I write down almost everything. Yeah, I think it's time I start writing my book, bro. Yeah, yeah. I I did the cover a long time ago, so it's time I start compiling. Yeah, it's right. It's right here. That's the cover to my book. That's cool. So I I I put it there so I can manifest it, and I think it's time to actually. What do they say? Don't be get so busy reading other books that you forget to write your own. So I think it's it's time. I I did the same thing with the cover for the the, for Monad, the first book that we're going to publish. Um, those are all translated by Thomas Taylor, the collection, by the way. Because he's the best translator of ancient Greek, um, it, he's he had a huge impact on occultism. Actually, in the 1700s, he translated all these things out of ancient Greek, Neoplatonic writings, and, and Plato himself into modern English in the 1700s. And people just went wild. They're like, "Oh my god!" You know, on the mysteries is one of the big ones because they're like, "Wait, like things were a lot wackier than maybe we thought." And sort of connected the English with that old Greek tradition uh, and his philosophies. And uh, so anyways, we, we actually did what you did. We made the cover first before we're going to put the book together as like a sort of way of visualizing it, manifesting it. Um, we had yeah. like an answer and am- I had the vision for the cover in my head. And then I had like an amateur artist to do it, like a cheap one, just have them, get it out you know it doesn't have to be perfect but just so it's there for us to like inspire us basically um and then i'm giving that to like a really legit artist to turn into something special so it's gonna be really it's gonna be really fun be cool and then we're gonna go from there we're doing a lot of stuff that's in the public domain first Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons you know copyright stuff it's cheap um, so it'd be fun, but we've got a list of really interesting things that we're going to be publishing, bringing back. 
Awesome, dude. I'm looking forward to that. You want to plug anything before we get out of here for the people to check you out or no, in, <laughs> in true long tradition, I don't have anything to, I know uh, my older brother kind of turns it down to you, but I'm the same way. Nothing to plug. Um, nice. I got the bookstore, but it, it speaks for itself. So nothing, yeah. nothing. Here. If, if you know, you know, and if you don't, then find no, out yeah. <laughs> looking forward to the next one, bro. We'll set it up maybe sometime next month. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready whenever you want. This was great, bro. You did awesome. This was really thought provoking, very interesting. And as always, everybody, see you on the other side. in church learning jesus but the questions that he had they gave no reasons just told him to have faith or he's a heathen but he just felt a piece now he out of school he on his own away from everybody with a cross a corresponding road professors at his college give him answers to the past he couldn't get when he was growing up all these religions and he's told they come from some and now he feels confused he don't know what to do and now he's looking for an outlet for his battery for his soul but the ghost are waiting for him of crowley and the faith finally power on the way yeah he loves the way but he don't know the trade dollars stacking like the flames getting hotter in the other place when the lights go
come up on the first What if daddy was addicted and put the mommy through her? Did he come back from the war with his mental ran through the dirt? Did the example at home push a generational curse? Mommy and the on her own, she don't need a man with purse She feel prideful yet despiteful cause the family is reversed She had a kid again, made more money for survival Man at work is competition and pleasing to domicile God can operate the home cause mommy thinking you're rival He said trust me let me leave but the system is her idol A woman's power is a miss, they convinced you that it wasn't It's not less than to be home growing life inside of your stomach And our power is a miss, once we harness up the scales We provision for the family, that's how I value